0: You're listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast in Kingsport, Tennessee. We are a community committed to prayer, radical hospitality, and intentional invitation. Well, our scripture text this morning comes from the 13th chapter of Matthew. And last week, Tom preached on a parable about weed and weeds and We're going to do another parable about wheat and weeds. So they're a little bit different, but pay attention. This is God's word for you. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who planted good seed in his field. And while people were sleeping, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and went away. When the stalks sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The servants of the landowner came and said to him, Master, did you plant good seed, and didn't you plant good seed in your field? Then how is it that it has weeds? The enemy has done this, he answered. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them? But the landowner said, no, because if you gather the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow side by side until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll say to the harvesters, first gather the weeds and tie them together in bundles to be burned, but bring the wheat into my barn. Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And so Jesus replied The one who plants the good seed is the human one. The field is the world. The good seeds are the followers of the kingdom. The weeds are the followers of the evil one. The enemy who planted them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the present age. The harvesters are the angels. Just as people gather weeds and burn them in fire, so it will be at the end of this present age. The human one will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that cause people to fall away and all people who sin. He will throw them into a burning furnace. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Those who have ears should hear. This is the word of the Lord. Interpreting scripture is very difficult. And I think one of the really difficult things about it is that we don't always understand maybe the mode of speech or the form of speech that's being used in scripture. When we communicate with one another, just here in this room, we understand if someone's using metaphorical language. We understand if someone is being sarcastic or ironic. We understand when someone's trying to be very literal and direct. But what's even more confusing is back then, there were lots of different forms and modes of speech and they're not always easily identifiable. Years ago, I read a book called The Dark Interval by this Irish-American biblical scholar. His name is John Dominic Crossan. And his book was about these different types of techniques that ancient people would use to make a point. And in particular, it was about the parables of Jesus. We recognize parables pretty quick because of their metaphorical language, but that doesn't necessarily mean we always understand them. They're very confusing. In fact, this is one of the weird ones where Jesus actually goes out of his way at the end and says, look, here's what it is. Here's the roles. I want to help you understand it. But this book, The Dark Interval, it's been really important to me over the years. We tend to think of parables as stories that function just as a metaphor, We're very comfortable with metaphorical language. We use it with each other all the time. But in ancient wisdom traditions, that's not exactly what a parable was. So you didn't know you were going to seminary today, but you're going to for a little bit. We're going to talk about some forms of speech. And I promise you, it actually is interesting. There are all sorts of types of forms of speech. And parables are just one of them. Others are myths You might have heard, we use the word myth all the time, but there's other ones called like aphorisms and maxims. So I want you this morning to imagine a continuum with two poles. And at one pole are myths. And they're intended to help us understand why the world is the way it is. And myths are the closest thing to that pole. So it went in myths, telling us this is why the world is the way it is. Now, when we use myth, we don't use it like that, right? We use it to say, well, that's not true. Or we use it to say, uh, maybe like an old wives' tale, something that everyone believes but isn't necessarily true. So when we say myth, we're not talking about that one. We're talking merely about kind of fanciful stories or even direct stories that are trying to help you understand the world the way it is. I'll give you an example. I've heard this story here quite a few times, but it goes like this. When this church was planted 70 years ago, the congregation didn't have a place to worship for a little bit. They were waiting on their building to be built, and so they worshiped in someone's garage, and then they ultimately worshiped under a tree for weeks and weeks I'd heard different stories. I heard that it was a tree in a charter member's yard. I heard it was the big tree out here in front for us. And during that whole time they worshiped, it never rained. And it went that way for weeks and weeks until the building was built. Okay, the story I just told you, it's a myth. And I don't mean a myth like it's not true. It tells us why we're here. It tells us we're here because a group of faithful people felt called to come to Colonial Heights and build a new community of faith. In ancient American and Native American traditions, there's this saying that goes, that, that elders of the tribe often use when they're talking to the children about their tribal story. And they say this, I don't know if it happened this way or not, but this story is true that's what a myth does. It tells you why the world is the way it is. It doesn't have to be factually accurate. It's just expressing something that's true. Christians, do we have myths? Yeah, absolutely. If we look at the first two chapters of Genesis, they're often called the creation myths. And so when we look at them, we could say, well, these don't Scientifically accurately describe our understanding of the world. It doesn't seem to match up very well with what we know of the origins of our universe. But what those stories tell us is why we're here and who put us here. Out of that abundant love and community, God created us and we bear the image of God. So whether creation happened, as some say, in the way it was literally written on the pages, or it happened in the span of millions of years and human beings emerged from a long evolutionary process, the creation stories are still ultimately true because they're telling us who we are, who put us here, and why we're here. So that's one end of that continuum stories that tell us why we're here, who we are, what life is about. So if we think kind of in the middle of that continuum, there's something called aphorisms. They're just simple statements. Jesus uses it all the time. We use them all the time. God is love. No greater love than this, than one would lay down one's life for a friend. That's an aphorism. It's just communicating a simple principle. They stand on their own. They're not really trying to make a huge argument. They're just telling it like it is. So we have myths, aphorisms, and finally we get to the other end of the continuum, and that's where we find parables. Parables are the anti-myths. Myths, they tell you how the world is and how it works. Parables at the other end of the continuum say, what you think you know about this world The way you think everything works, it's wrong. These myths you believe in, they're not true. The world works in a different way. God works in a different way. And so parables at their very nature are trying to defy you. They're trying to flip your understanding of the world. In some ways, they're trying to offend you. They seek to upset you, to change the way you view the world. So think about it like this. Who does Jesus make the hero of a story? A Samaritan. When he tells a story about a young son that tells his dad, get dead, take my inheritance, and he runs off and blows it all. Who's the villain in that story? It's the older brother who's done everything right. Jesus tells parables about a shrewd landowner. So we think of God as being benevolent and loving, but in this story, Jesus talks about God being a shrewd landowner, a shrewd businessman. It doesn't make sense. In some ways, it's upsetting. And now it might not be as upsetting to us because we have no skin in the game of thinking Samaritans are the worst people on earth. But back then when Jesus taught like this, it would have been scandalous so, parables, they're not meant to reinforce your understanding of the world. They're to the tear it apart. I love parables. But I got to be honest with you, I don't like today's. Yeah, it's got all the shocking elements of a parable. The master is the one who plants his crops. That doesn't make sense. He has all these servants. He owns huge parcels of land. Why is the master the one planting the crop? That doesn't make any sense. Then later, the master sees evidence that his enemy comes in his crops and plants all these weeds. What's he do about it? Nothing. Just kind of lets it go. His servants come to him and say, there's all these weeds in here. We need to get them out. What's the pastor say? No. And what's even stranger about this story, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the few parables Jesus says, all right, dummies, I'm gonna explain it to you. Here's the reason I don't like this. And you might share this. This parable has all sorts of dualism in it, meaning everything is so clearly defined. It seems that in this world, there are only two groups of people the children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one. There's wheat and there's weeds and all the destinies of these little plants, these people are fixed from the beginning. If you're like me, it is hard to live in the Bible Belt for any amount of time and not immediately think of fire-breathing preachers on the radio or endless altar calls talking about Heaven or hell, asking you, brother, are you saved? These are some of the very passages where that type of theology finds its language and animates that type of behavior. One of the early films directed by the Cohen brothers the genius duo who brought us O oh Brother Where Art Thou and No Country for Old Men, but one of their early films was this film called The Hudsucker Proxy. It starred Tim Robbins when he was a fairly young man and he was a new business school graduate who was just installed as the president of a major manufacturing company. In some ways, it's kind of like a parable. It makes no sense. Why is this young business graduate ascending all the way to the president? But he was installed by by a board member who thought this young rube, this young, naive young man, would tank the company. And therefore, he could buy the company cheap. So, Tim Robbins gets installed as the president. And he uses his position as a president to go around to everyone and pitch his idea for this great new product for his company. So, they said, show it to me. So he takes out a piece of paper and a pencil and he draws a circle on it and he holds it up and he shows it to him and says, it's for kids. It's for kids. You're looking at me really confused, right? It makes no sense. Everyone in the movie, it's confusing to them. What? A circle on a piece of paper? It's for kids? This makes no sense. And obviously the owner, I'm sorry, the the evil board member thinks, this is wonderful. (laughs) This guy is crazy. It's going to tank the company. But little does he realize what he's actually drawing is a hula hoop. And so this company produces the first hula hoop, makes tons of money, And Tim Romans is celebrated as this visionary. I think sometimes we have seen and heard a passage like today, a story from the Bible or even common phrases from Scripture, and we've seen them interpreted in one narrow, dualistic, binary way for years and years that it builds in us this limited perspective. I don't know how to interpret this. We look at stories like these, and all we see is the circle drawn on a piece of paper. We miss the possibility that there's more depth and grace and hope in a text like this than we realize. So I want you to try something today. Let's try to look at this with a clean slate. Forget the things you've heard on the radio or the altar calls you've been through. Forget those things and let's see if God can speak to us in a new way. So I want to ask you this. Have you ever met someone in your life who you would say is wholly good? Have you ever met someone in your life that you would say is wholly bad? My guess is you've met a lot of saints, but even saints have flaws. I bet you uh, met a lot of really annoying or mean people, but even them, you might have seen moments of virtue in them. You probably realize that we are all a mixed bag of intentions and actions. So maybe our reactions with each other, we might lean one way or another, but to someone else, they might appear completely different. But in the end, no matter who we are, given the right stresses, the right temptations, the situations, we tend to present ourselves often as not the best people at times. Great leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln knew this truth when they said to us as a nation over and over, appeal to your better angels, recognizing that there's parts of us that lean different ways. Even on the simplest level, we fundamentally realize we do not present ourselves always as the same person in every situation to every person. The massive online TV and movie streaming service, Netflix, is kind of interesting. They never release their data about who's watching what and what's the most watched television show. Sometimes they just say, well, people have watched this show the most, you'll have to take our word for it. They never really let people see it, so Nielsen's not giving them ratings. And yet, they have over 100 million subscribers. It's enormous. We know very little about what people are actually watching. But recently, some of that started to change. They released a little bit of their data, uh, and they voluntarily started sharing some tidbits with their viewers. They started sharing simple things like who or what type of shows were being watched at certain times of the day some outside organizations took that data along with data from other streaming services and compared it and found some interesting things. Think about this. There's a big difference between what people say they enjoy watching and what people actually watch. Think about this. Think about the way you've communicated your entertainment choices. <laughs> when, people often tell, when people are asked about what are their favorite things to watch, they often say, critically acclaimed movies and TV shows. It's a variable who's who list of Oscar-nominated films and Emmy-nominated TV shows, but what we actually watch are more frequently are just simple movies, simple shows that are light and keep us entertained at the end of a long day. Now, if you're someone that is totally honest about that, you are a better person than me. <laughs> For me, I try to tell you about, I'm trying to walk, walk or watch my way through the Oscar-nominated list, but I just don't have time to watch them all. I still have not watched Moonlight. That's a, that's a real shame. I'd also like to say, man, I really need to catch up on Down Abbey. Second I get a free Saturday, I'm just gonna binge through that. But in the reality, I often fill my free time watching and rewatching old episodes of The Office and Parks and Recreation that I have watched six, seven, eight, nine times. Now, in the grand scheme of social injustices, I don't think God is super concerned about the disparity between what I say I'm watching and what's in my Netflix queue. But I think it illustrates for us that we are inherently complex and contradictory creatures. We, if we're a field of wheat, we're a little bit of wheat and we're a little bit of weeds. As a community, a church, we are called to imitate Jesus, to follow Jesus, to present Jesus' message to the world. We're the ones that are called to act in Jesus' name, bringing good news to others. But the church, even the church has expressed itself as a mixed body. Now, I'm not talking about if you analyze the church with its parts, I'm saying the church as a whole. If you compare churches throughout the ages, we're a mixed body. Yeah, we're wheat, we're weeds at times. If we scan the history of the church, we quickly realize that there's no point in our history where we've been able to say, we are wholly, perfectly good in this moment. We're wholly, perfectly evil. Sadly, the church herself has been an agent and justify our many evils throughout the age. I've been reading this book called The Great Spiritual Migration by Brian McLaren, and one of the main focuses of the early part of the book is Brian is calling us as the Western church to come to terms with many of the evils that our spiritual forefathers and mothers had either actively participated in or were complicit in, and then generally swept them under the rug like nothing happened. How often as Christians in today's age, when we think about issues of race and immigration, do we hold in mind the spiritual history of this new world of North America shaped by the theology and choices of people like Christopher Columbus or Cortez? Nearly 40 years before Columbus sailed the Ocean Blue, there was a pope whose name was Nicholas and he put forth a series of papal letters establishing something called the doctrine of discovery. It put forth this idea that it is the duty of the church and every Christian to go out, explore, conquer the world and subdue the people it discovers this discovery of our new world, this home we live in, it was driven by that theology. I'm going to read a portion of this letter. The Pope commanded the church, these, these are the actual words, to invade, to search out, to capture, to vanquish, and subdue all pagans. And other enemies of Christ, wheresoever placed, and the kingdoms, and the dukedoms, and the principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods, whatsoever held and possessed by them, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors and kingdoms and dukedoms and countries and principalities, dominions, possessions, and good, and to convert them all to his or her use and profit. Native peoples and nations that still happen to be around today refer to this as the beginning of 500 years of injustice. Genocide, we don't even have an accurate figure. Some people guess 7 million killed as a result of this. Some people guess up in the 20s of millions. Genocide, justified in the name of the Lord. Systematic removal of Native American tribes out of their lands. It's manifest destiny. Justified in the name of the Lord. Slavery, it's right there. The Pope said it. Make these people slaves. That's what God wants of you. Justified in the name of the Lord. From those roots, it's easy to see the racial supremacy and systemic injustice that's still with us today. So the church, man, we are a mixed plot of land. We're wheat and weeds. We see that same dynamic in our spiritual titans in scripture. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, Peter, and Paul, weed and weeds. And just a few chapters from Mark and chapter, I'm sorry, in Matthew and 16, just a few bit on, Jesus will actually call Peter, Peter known as the rock, the head of the early church. Jesus will look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. Look at the words of Paul in his letter to the Romans. I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. This is from the man that wrote most of our New Testament. So you might be asking, where's the good news in today's parable? Remember we said at the beginning of the sermon that parables are at the opposite end of the continuum from myth. Myth tells us why the world is and parables tell you those myths are wrong. They're scandalous. They upend our way of understanding the world. So what's the scandal in this passage? It's not the weeds. We understand at the end, weeds need to be gathered up and burned. They're weeds. It's that when looking at the field... And seeing the wheat and weeds, and hearing his servants ask to gather up the weeds, the master tells them, wait. Wait. Don't pull up the wheat. Don't pull up the weeds. You're going to pull up the wheat too. Wait. This parable is about having holy patience. It's about God's patience with the church and us. It's about teaching us to have that same holy patience with others. Because we have this inevitable human preoccupation between drawing lines between who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God, who is good and who is evil, who is virtuous and who is unvirtuous. This preoccupation is built into the myth that God requires us to defend the wheat from the weeds. So do you see how this parable breaks that apart? The reality is Jesus, when he was using the word for wheat, was that, or weeds, was actually talking about this grain of wild rice that when it grew, it looked identical to wheat. So why does God tell us to not pull up the wheat from the weeds? Because we're terrible at identifying Weeds. They grew up, and as they grew, they actually looked identical. You didn't even know they were wheat and weeds until the very end. Weeds would slip, uh, slope over. You see that here? It's heavy, it's bent over, and the weed would just stand up straight. We are terrible at identifying weeds and wheat. So, why is that important? Why is that essential? Because God wants us to leave room for hope in our lives. There's always hope for others and ourselves that we will be awakened at any given moment to a larger reality. There's always hope that in our unholy mess, seedlings of holiness can sprout up within us. There is always hope that the evils of our past and the evils of our present, that in that midst, God is still calling us to a future that's holy. There's always hope that relationships that have been wrecked by distrust and self-doubt and apathy can be salvaged. There's always hope that in moments of confusion and controversy within the church, the church can find her voice and speak truth to power, to stand with and for the least and the last. There's always hope that the church ravaged with conflicts over whose interpretation of scripture is right can emerge from their battles to realize that there is no law above love. Let God be the one who pulls the weeds out of your lives. Let God be the one who separates the weeds and the wheat in the church. The good news today is wait. Be patient. Leave room for hope and change and new possibilities in your life. I think the song says it purpose perfectly when it says this is my father's world oh let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong guy is the ruler yet this is my father's world why should my heart be sad The Lord is King, let heavens ring, God reigns, let earth be glad. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. For more information about our faith community, visit us online at chpres.org.